0: If you've got a Bible, find your way to to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. This is a story that we're going to look at uh, this morning that is uh, about a person who, uh, for all of the right reasons and with all the right intention and with all the right desire, did something that went horribly wrong. And there's only a couple of us in here that can relate to that, but it's a guy who really wanted to do the right thing and then just jacked up everything and everything got messed up. And we're going to look at how God is working in and through all of that to do much greater things. We started in Genesis because that's where the Bible starts. That's where God's story starts for us as we read his word. And we've worked through Genesis over the last month and several weeks. And as we come to the end of March, we now entered into Exodus. We actually did two weeks ago, but we did a kind of a one-off last week as I get to interview Terry. It was a great um, uh, Sunday. If you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to it. It gives more kind of context and what's going on in the life of our church right now. In Genesis, we found that, that God created, that, that humanity went sideways, um, that God is in this process throughout the rest of Scripture of restoring and redeeming and reconciling everything, us and all of creation, to himself and to one another. And that's a very, very long story and takes lots of turns and twists. Um, God decided to, to reveal himself through a people. By creating a people and promising to Abraham that he was going to make a, him a, a nation. And through that nation, he was going to reveal himself. There wasn't anything particularly special about that people. That It was God's choice. They didn't earn it. They didn't win it. They weren't first across the line and best. And so he chose them. He just chose them. And he says, this is going to be my people. I'm going to reveal myself through them. And we walked through the story of Joseph a few weeks ago as John Chang spoke. And it was great to see that story in new light, the story of Joseph. Joseph is in Egypt now. And his brothers um, are reconciled to him. And so they they come to to Egypt and move into Egypt and live there. And then they multiply. It says that God was kind to Joseph and his brothers in the midst of this Egyptian empire. And they multiply and multiply. And then the Egyptians realize, hey, there's a lot of them. Joseph dies. His brothers dies. It's several generations later. And they realize, look, there's a lot of these Hebrews. And we're the Egyptians. And we don't want them to overtake us. So we'll enslave them. Oh, and by the way, they'll build cities for us. And that'll be really great. And so they enslave the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people cried out to God and said, God, free us. We don't want to be slaves. Nobody wants to be a slave. Free us. And God begins to work and move. And we, we walk into this story of this, this baby that's born. And this baby is born in, in really unfortunate circumstances because this baby that's born is a male. And the, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, has said one of the things that we're going to do to, to stem the tide of this Hebrew growth and, and fruitfulness and multiplication is to, is to just take out all the boys. And so this particular baby is born in a time where there's this, this creed, this law was put into place that all of the Hebrew baby boys that were born were to be killed, to be murdered on site when they're delivered and, and put in the, the river, to be drowned in the, in the river. And so um, this baby is born and named Moses. And when Moses is born, his, his mother doesn't kill him. The midwives don't kill him, but they do follow the, the the law and they put him in the river, but they didn't put him in the river to drown. They put him in the river in this little boat that they made for him, this little basket so he would float. And he's born into this time really of of genocide of his people, of, of little baby boys that are born. And he's put in the river and Pharaoh's daughter sees him and, and her servants pull him out. And then he is... Is his, his sister runs over and says, hey, I can help. That's a Hebrew baby. You want some help with that? And, and because he's so cute, apparently, the daughter says, I want to keep this one. Uh, Dad won't mind. Pharaoh won't mind. I, you know, it wasn't like they wanted puppies and those kind of things in it. it was they wanted little, little baby Hebrew boys, I guess. And so they said, hey, we're going to keep this one. And so the, the sister runs over and says, hey, I can help you with that. For the first probably three to four or five years of his life, he's actually raised by his biological mother. His identity is shaped in that time by his biological mother and his family. And then when he gets to a certain age, Pharaoh's daughter says, all right, he's ready, give him to me. And he comes and lives in in Pharaoh's palace. And he's raised. And so he gets that early time with his parents. And then he gets to a certain age where he goes to the Hebrew palace and he's raised as a, sorry, the Egyptian palace. He's raised as an Egyptian with all of the luxury and all of the privilege and all of the education and all of the training. And he's got this great um, story already where early formed identity with his people and then all the benefits of the ruling people of that time. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. It's the this, this story of this, this man named, named Moses. And I want to walk through a few days and then a lot of years of his life in just a few verses. We've got day one, and then it's the next day, and then we've got kind of the next 40 years of his life that we'll read in just a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2, if you're there, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, the Hebrew people, and he watched them at their hard labor. They were slaves and they were just making brick after brick after brick after brick. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He knew that was my own people. These Hebrews are my own people and an Egyptian is beating them. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand, and hid him in, in the earth. He, he, he buried him in the sand. Uh, one day Moses goes out, sees hey they're, they're working as as slaves, and the slave drivers are, are probably whipping them and yelling at them and screaming at them and and all that kind of thing. And off to the side he sees one Egyptian uh, beating a, a Hebrew slave. And, and and something stirs in him. This he's got this instinct that this is wrong. This is evil. This is unjust. And and that's my people. And he he looks around and, and makes sure there's nobody else can see him. And somehow he he kills the the Egyptian uh, slave driver guy and and then and then buries him in the sand and, and freeing that that one slave from his his beating. Uh, it, it says this in. Uh, Later on in Acts, all the way in the New Testament, this story is, is retold by Stephen, one of the earlier followers of Jesus, and he's put on trial and eventually stoned Stephen as he's one of the first followers of Jesus, he's the first um, martyr, he's the first one to go on trial and, and, and defend himself before, um, uh, before a court and, and to claim faith in Jesus, and then he's stoned for it. But he tells the story of Moses in telling the whole story of God that what we're doing, we're walking through Scripture, Stephen does that on trial. He says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old. So what we have here is we know that, that Moses was put in the river, and then f- first three to five years of life raised in his own home, then it comes into the Egyptian palace, and he's trained. And it's not just like he's a teenager, early 20s, and he's ready to go out and explore the world. He's 40 years old. So he's fully Egyptian now, and he's, got, he, he's, he's, he's well into life. And it's at that point that he heads out to see what's going on to his people at 40 years old. Lived probably 35 to 37 years of privilege in the palace and then goes out and sees his people. Moses, at 40 years old, decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him, him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought, here we go. Stephen gets us a little bit into Moses' mind of what's going on. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. That, that, that totally makes sense. He knows who he is. He's grown up in the Egyptian palace, but he knows who he is because he had that first three to five years, and he knows the Hebrew people are my people. These slaves out here are actually my people. I'm going to go rescue them. And his plan to begin that rescue is to kill one Egyptian who's off to the side beating another guy. I'm going to rescue them, and, and he's thinking, and they'll, they'll thank me for it, right? But they did not thought that they would realize that he was there to rescue him, but that didn't work out, but they didn't realize it. Here's what happens. Back in Exodus chapter 2, the next verse, on the very next day, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. So he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, day two, the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. I don't know if they were on break from being slaves and and building bricks, and we don't really know, but they're they're just fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong. So he looked at it and assessed. Somebody's somebody's in the wrong and somebody's in the right. The one that's doing the beating is in the wrong, the one that's probably winning. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So Moses grows to age 40 Heads out and goes, all right, I'm, it's time for me to, to start rescuing my people. I know that there's, there's slavery out there. I don't really know the details of it. I probably haven't seen it up close yet, but it's out there. I'm going to go check out at age 40. He, he says, I'm going to become a rescuer. I'm going to, in, in, in Acts, it actually uses the word avenge. I'm going to avenge them. So he's got, so it's, it's hard for me. He doesn't have the same stories. He didn't have the same learning. You know, there weren't movies then. But I, he's got some kind of view of himself as a superhero, He's some kind of avenger where he's going to go out and save the Hebrew people. And he steps in, and, he, and step one was to kill an Egyptian. Oh, I, I rescued a guy. I did so good. Which, that's a, I mean, good thing that you, you rescued a guy from being beaten. Not such a good thing that you, you committed murder on, on day one of your superhero-ness. But he, that's what he did. And then day two, he comes out, and he, he sees his own people, and he's like, this isn't good that you guys are fighting. And what does he, but they immediately go, look, you're, what, we don't want you, <laughs> We can see, you, you're, you're, you're Hebrew, you're full Hebrew, you look like us, we can see that, you've got features and skin color, you're not Egyptian, you're Hebrew. We can see you're one of us and we don't want you. Take your fancy clothes and your fancy education and your, all your math school and just go off and somewhere else. That's what he's, that, we don't want you, just, just go. It, his plan is already backfiring and he's on, he's on day two of his plan, day two of his plan and it, it's not going well. And then he realizes, I, uh, this isn 't good, <laughs> I made a misstep here something didn 't go right in my plan that I worked on until I was forty, and then I went out and implemented my plan. Verse fifteen says this when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses Pharaoh 's trying to kill Moses Moses is is not just one of uh, his many grandsons I mean he is that there's who knows how many there are there 's plenty he 's got plenty of daughters and they 've they've had, they've had kids. Moses is one of plenty of, of grandsons that Pharaoh has, but Moses is, is in line to the throne. He's one of the ones that would have been trained and, and have been available to assume the throne, even though he's a Hebrew. He would have had all that training. He would have been on the list of the potential men who could step in and be, be Pharaoh. And, and to us, we, we, we might think of that as like, oh, that's that's a good thing. It, it is, but it's always a threat to that power, right? And so Pharaoh looks at him and goes, this is a threat to my power. And here's a guy who's already stepped out of line at age 40. And so he's done. He's off the list. And he's now not just done, but he, we're going to kill him. And so find that guy who, who, who compromised us as an Egyptian people, even though we raised him and educated him. He's compromised. We're going to kill him. Pharaoh heard of this. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well, so scripture tells us that day one went okay, not great. Day two was a complete disaster and and day two ended with with Moses fleeing Pharaoh and going to Midian, which we 'll get to Midian in a moment, but he goes to Midian and it actually says he sat down by a well so um, just just for a moment let 's step back and, and take a to kind of stalk of of Moses's life trajectory here. Born into genocide, should be murdered, killed, gets plucked from the river, gets to spend the first most formative years of his life with his biological mother, his people, his family, his identity is set. Then he goes into the palace and gets all of the privilege and education and luxury, and he's just spoiled in so many ways. And he, and he gets to this point where he says, okay, I've arrived, I'm 40 years old now, and this is what I'm called to do. I am called to, to free my people, which is a very good thing, right? That's a good thing to free slaves. It's a good thing to be called back to your people. All of the right things, and then he goes and, and pushes play on his plan, and what happens? Within 48 hours, it's gone. He flees to many. We don't know how long it takes him to get there, and he finds himself, and he sits down by a well. And, and that's not like a that's, in, in case you're wondering, that's, that's not like a celebratory statement. Oh, I made it to Midian. Found a nice place. He's got a nice pad. He accessed his savings account from the Egyptian banks, and he bought a great place in Midian. And oh, he's just, he's cruising on easy. No, he's sitting down by a well. He's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's probably still dressed in his nice Egyptian clothes that we'll find out in a moment. He still looks like an Egyptian, and he's got nothing. He's entered into obscurity a failure that's where we go in the span of just a, a few days. That's, that's Moses. That's where we get. Here's what happens next. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Moses is a single dude sitting by a well. This is, story starts to turn a little bit. This is, this is a little hopeful, okay? A bunch of single women just show up. Now, a, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water to fill the troughs uh, of, their, of their father's flock. Some shepherds It'd be great if we could cue music for the bad guy right there. Shepherds, bad guys show up. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. So the women come up with the flocks to to get them water, and the shepherds drive them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Good move, Moses. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, who's later Jethro, if you know that story, Jethro, Jethro. he asked them, why have you returned so early today? So he, he, here's what happened. The normal routine for these gals is to, is to take their flocks over to get harassed by these shepherds and have to navigate that and deal with that and put up with that and, 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 and then come back later in the afternoon. And that's the normal routine. They get home really early because Moses gets rid of the shepherds for them. He's, he's probably got some kind of like, you know, he killed the Egyptian slaveholder which is probably a pretty big, strong dude, and we don't know what Moses looks like, but he probably knows some kind of Egyptian judo. That's a real thing, and he probably uses it on the shepherds as well, and he's got some kind of skill, and he, he gets rid of them in some way. And so the dad is, dad's impressed, and he's like, whoa, 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 gals. There's seven of you. There's not a lot of great guys around here. They, they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Like, I would love to see his facial expression when he asked that. Uh, you let him go? Um, why did you leave him? Invite him here to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man. That was a tough sell. Moses agreed to stay with the man. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, who gave his daughter. I don't know if this all happened in the same night, but it's quite a day for Moses if it did. He gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Life's changing a little bit. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, eee, Okay. Um, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Okay, Moses shows up, sits down by a well, and kind of probably pouts and takes stock of his life, and is like, this is a, this is a, I just made a complete and utter train wreck of my life. I've got to get safe. I've got to get out. The reason he goes to Midian, Midian's not a desirable place. It's a barren land. They're fighting over a well, as you can tell, and instead of going to Canaan or the promised land or somewhere up there, he goes to some barren place. It's today Saudi Arabia, and he sits down by a well, kind of going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? He shows up, he runs off some shepherds and saves some seven daughters, shows up at their place for dinner and gets married, and and then has a son, you know, presumably roughly nine months later, names him Gershon, which is, you know, maybe that's a great name then. I don't, if, if there's anyone in here named Gershon, I, you know, no offense, but that's, that's kind of an odd name, and he picks that name because it means stranger in a strange land. The, the, the kid's name is literally Stranger. That's not gonna go well in middle school, but it, it, he says, I'm gonna name my son this because this is my lot in life. So even though he's married, we're not told that, that he loves her or that she loves him at all. That never happens in scripture. He names his first son Stranger, and he, he stays in this barren land for 40 years. His dream of being an avenger His dream of being a rescuer, his plan to save these people is done. It's over. He shut it down and he's going to live here for 40 years. And that's what he does. Before I read these next three verses, I want to just quickly point to three things I think we see in this text. It's kind of a brutal story. The the first thing we see this, and, and this story is not meant to to highlight this or point to it but this is a, a truth that shows up over and over and over throughout scripture and, and the first thing that we see is this that you and i do not have the ability the skill the wisdom the shrewdness to hide sin we we can't do that that that's one of the things that we see in the, moses tries to hide he buries him in the sand he tries to hide doing something wrong and he can't do it. And, and it's this thing that shows up over and over and over through Scripture. We actually can't hide sin. And, and, and in saying that, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, this isn't even saying. In this story, in this narrative, what we don't find is, is the message, don't hide sin. It, it's not even saying that. It's not even saying you should not hide sin. It's just merely acknowledging that we can't do it. Now, even as we see that in this story and you hear me say those words, Almost every single one of us in this room go, yeah, well, okay. I've done that before pretty well. I've done it for a long time. I've made it work. I've gotten by it. In fact, there's, there's something I'm actually hiding right now that's, that I'm doing a pretty good job of hiding it. Um, I, I, I'm going to try to hide it a little while longer because that's easier and less painful than, than confessing it. We, it's just part of the human condition. We all do that. We, we think we can, and, and this is just a reminder, it's just a hint, you can't, it, it doesn't work. Um, I wish I had um, more, maybe, I don't know, time to work on this, or maybe it's just maturity, I, I don't know, but as I read this this week and sat on it and think about it and, and, and prayed about it, this, this picture kept coming to my mind, and so I just want to apologize to it up front. But I haven't come up with a better one yet, and, and maybe I will for the 11 o'clock, and, and then and we'll just put that one on the podcast. But the image that comes to my mind when I think about this is the image of when I was potty training my three sons. And if you're a parent, you've had this experience, and if you're not, don't let this make you scared to have kids. Kids are wonderful. It challenges you and makes you into a better woman or man. But when we were potty training them, we had this thing, and all three of them had this experience. And and, and this one, and I'm not even gonna use the name because I didn't ask for permission from him, but um, one of my three sons, when we were at grandma's house, when they were being potty trained, were running around to all of the things that grandma put out. There was there was a video on the TV, there was toys laid out, there was snacks on the table. He was a toddler, he was in his diaper wearing this, gearing up for potty training, wasn't quite there yet, but understood that there's this special miniature throne next to the adult throne and they would get to use that and there was treats involved and all kind of this, But he, but he had these, you know, his little toddler pants on and was running around and was we sitting with grandma and grandpa talking, catching up and look over and, and what happened? We, we didn't make it to the restroom um, and it wasn't number one. And so there's this, there's this thing happening in the room and it's literally in, in his pants. And we notice it in multiple senses. And um, as the dad in, in, in my parents' home, I took the initiative to, to deal with it. And so I began to, uh, enter into a conversation a dialogue with said son and we're going to need to deal with this now and the look on the face was no no I'm going to I'm going to play and then I'm going to go over here I'm going to get a snack and then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to I'm going to sit well I'm going to I'm going to stand and watch the video for a moment and then I'm going to go over here and I got lots of things to do I don't have time to deal with that well it, it seems to be that there's something wrong with with you right now we need to address this no I'm fine I checked just to make sure it wasn't just me yet. we Okay, we smell and have visual sighting of, of the problem. And, and then there was this continued intention of denying that it was actually there. And, and typically what parents do is they step in and they go, okay, well, we're gonna deal with this by force and, and take care of it. And you can cry and kick and scream, but we're gonna deal with this. And I, for whatever reason, decided, I think a good learning experience would be just to let you sit in that and deal with that for a while. Now, I realize that that is borderline inappropriate to paint that picture for you all in a church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> when we do this, not that, but when we do this and we decide I'm going to hide my sin from myself, from the closest ones around me, and certainly to my God, we're doing the exact same thing. We're letting something go in our life that will cause us not just uncomfortability and a rash, but we're doing something that hurts us. It causes us pain, and it begins hurting the others around us, not just inconveniencing them, not just making them uncomfortable, not just making their day a bummer, it eventually hurts them. It leaks out, it seeps out, and it hurts other people. And we lie to ourselves and tell us that this isn't gonna happen. And Moses, with all of his brilliance and all of his background, came to 40 years old and on day one made that mistake and tried to hide it and thought, I'm gonna be good for day two. And it blows up in his face. And you and I are so much smarter and wiser and brilliant than Moses that we hang on for weeks and years and even decades in our life thinking that we're gonna hide something from ourselves, others, and God. And it sits there on us and it harms us, and it hurts us, and it holds us back. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. We live in a world we live in a world that, that doesn't understand mercy and doesn't understand the gift that it is and the goal that it is and, the, and the, the hope that it is. And so we live in a world that thinks that we can prosper by concealing things that are wrong and bad. And in fact, we affirm those and celebrate those and promote those that actually do it really, really well. And God says, nope, there's, a, there's actually a different way of life because there's actually a different kind of world. There's more than what you can see here. And when you confess it, you receive mercy. When you confess it, Mercy is what happens. Now, there's there's pain, there's uncomfortability. We have to deal with guilt and at times shame. And God says that all of that is going to be limited and I want to take that away. That's what mercy is. And yet we, in our humanity, in our humanness, we think if I can just withhold this and hide it, it's going to be better. And Proverbs says we don't prosper. We don't We don't prosper in the way that God designs us to prosper and wants us to prosper. And yet when we confess it and renounce it and put it out there, mercy is poured out to us. The second thing is this. It seems at this point in the story of God, we're only in chapter two of Exodus, but it sure seems at this point in the story of God, in the second book of the Old Testament, it it seems like failure is a precondition to be used by God for mighty and wonderful things. If you haven't been with us, go back and read the book of Genesis. Go back and read the book of Genesis and find a stellar guy or gal. It's going to take you a really long time. All of the characters are flawed. All of them are messed up. Adam and Eve blow out really, really early and run around and try to cover themselves because shame enters into the human condition for the first time and they realize they're naked and want to separate themselves from one another. Noah does pretty good building the ark and all that, and then he goes himself, gets himself drunk and flashes everybody, and he's an embarrassment. And then we've got the, the, Abraham, who lies about his sister when God told him, I'm going to protect you, and does these amazing things. He still lies and says, this is my sister, when in fact, is his wife. And gosh, that, that makes a mess. And, and Jacob hardly does anything good. Jacob, find something good to Jacob does. I mean, it, it's just this laundry list. And then we get to Moses, and Moses gets this great storyline and resume up to age 40. And then he goes out on the first day trying to be an Avenger, and he blows it and makes a big mistake. Failure seems to be a precondition to be used by God. Gosh, that's good news. Isn't that good news? See, all of us, we spend all of this time trying to make our lives look look really good, or at least I do. I don't know, maybe you don't, but I want to look good. I want to accomplish things. I want to check things off my list. I want to do well. I want to score. If there's a test I take, I want to get an A. And so much of our world affirms that and celebrates that. And God says, no, there's actually another way. There's actually a different kind of world that I'm trying to bring into this world and renew it and remake it and do other things. And I I work with a different grid. I consistently pick people who have screwed up and made mistakes and made fools of themselves. Here's what this means. If you're like in the the 100% on everything, if you just do everything right and hit it all right all the time, maybe if you're like in the 98th percentile, okay, you're like way up there and you're just awesome all the time. No, we'll just do A. If you get an A, Okay, If you get an A in life right now, and what we're going to do is we're not just going to make it 90 and above. We're going to be that really great professor that rounds up when you get an 89.5. So if you're an 89.5 or, or above, you actually, you don't need to be here. I mean, Connor said it earlier. It's kind of an inconvenience to take time out of our sunny Sunday and to be inside. and I mean, You don't need to be here. You, I mean, you're good to go. We won't look. We'll just keep looking up here at me. You, you can just kind of get up and slide out the back and go on with it. You don't need to be here. You've got it figured out. Good luck with that. Because number one is you can't hide your sin. So There's something in your life that's not right, and you're probably just carrying around in your pants and you don't want to deal with it yet. But you actually don't have an A. You're not an 89.5 and above. Every single person has messed up, has sin in their life, and is broken in some significant way. And if you're denying that, God says, you're missing out on mercy. You're missing out on freedom. You're missing out on forgiveness. You're missing out on wholeness because you can't make yourself whole. And so you can be dismissed for now if you're an 89.5 or up in your own mind. But man, for the rest of us, this is good news. But it's also a challenge. And here's what it means. None of us are disqualified from being used by God. And some of us have actually qualified ourselves more than others because we've consistently failed and, and said, God, I'm coming with nothing. I got nothing. Failure sure seems to be a precondition. I, man, I'm going long, I'm sorry. I need to finish this up. But I, I do have to say, I, I can't read the story of Moses and watch his life trajectory and end up by the well down here and not, and not think, we need to hear this as a church right now. Man, we've had some good days. Man, things have been easy and we've excelled. Man, we've done some great things for God. We've had people come in and say, oh, you're a Hall of Fame church. Oh, that, thanks. Like, like we did that. No, God was working the whole time doing things. And then we had a season of struggle and plateau and decline. And okay, what if we actually stopped and went, okay, God, rather than, rather than thinking, oh, we got to pack up and be done and we failed in some way. What if we said our, our struggle, and if we want to put failure on it in some way, our, our failure, what if that is, is something you're doing? You're opening us up an opportunity to, to walk with you in a new way and to become a new thing. Moses, for 40 years, hung out in Midian thinking he was done and not ever going to be a rescuer or an avenger or any kind of great work of God. And then it, and then it changes. And he, the next very chapter is when God shows up, speaks to him in a burning bush. He becomes one of the 10 greatest leaders throughout the story of God in Scripture. But he had failed dramatically and significantly. The last thing is this. God's ways are not our ways. We would win all the time. We would score 100. We would do it this way. We would show up and, and take out the Egyptian with our Egyptian judo and bury him in the sand, and, and then everybody would just flock to us and say, we're ready to rise up, and we'll take our, our our tools and our weapons, and we'll overthrow Egypt and take over the known world at the time, and Moses, you'll be our king or our pharaoh. Like, that's how our plan would go, and, and God says, no, at 40 years old, you're going to go out in the desert and hang out for 40 years, and then I'm going to use you for the next 40 to do radical things for me. Because Moses, there's no way Moses would have brought his brother Aaron. He knew his brother, which is a pretty cool thing. Brought Aaron into a war room they made up and lay out a map of the Hebrew tents and slave places that they lived and then say, hey, this is how we're gonna do it and come up with these 10 plagues and this, find this special stick, not just a normal stick, but a special stick that turns into a snake. And he says, this is how we're gonna free the people. There's no way Moses would come up with that. And yet that's what God does. And so what we have is this radical story that humanity has told and retold in so many different ways. It says, this is a unique God that shows up and works in his way and not our way. Listen to the last three verses. Verse 23. During that long period, 40 years in the desert, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You know what's interesting in those last three verses What's interesting is who disappears and who reappears. The last three verses of this chapter, Moses disappears. He's not mentioned. Who reappears for the first time is God. The name of God is not mentioned in chapter 2 until those last verses. And it comes at the end of Moses spending 40 years in the desert, married to Zipporah and having a second son. And God is preparing him the entire time to come and be the kind of superhero that God wants to use Not that Moses wants to be 40 years earlier. That God shows up. I read a Jewish author this past week who I respect and appreciate, but they're not a follower of Jesus. And they looked at this story, and their commentary on this story was about how Moses cared about justice. How Moses fought for the seven women. How Moses tried to negotiate between two Hebrews fighting. How Moses cared about justice and the reason he looked at it that way is because Jesus doesn't enter into his perspective on this story because he's not a follower of Jesus, he's not a Messianic Jew. But when we get to the end of the story and we know that it's all about Jesus and he's pointing to Jesus, we can look back in this and say, yeah, in, in Moses' flawed attempt to do the right thing, God was still working. And Jesus at the end is the one that offers the mercy and the forgiveness because Jesus is the one that, that left his palace in heaven and came down and says, I'm gonna give my life. I'm not gonna make a mistake. I'm not gonna do the right thing in the wrong way. I'm going to offer my life. And so us, in all of our failure that gives us an opportunity to see how good God is, we come to this table over and over and over again. and I'm really sorry it's supposed to be done in one minute, so maybe if you can run real fast to the table and sing really fast, maybe we can fit this in. But we're going to sing one last song, and sorry for going long, but I want to invite you to this table to be reminded that God is the giver of mercy that God is the forgiver, that God is the restorer of all of our failure and all of our wrongdoing and all of our sin when we go, here it is, here's my life, use me.